and I'll encapsulate this, you, you know, for you with one story. I was talking to a former uh, solicitor general right before I started on November first in 2018, and uh, and I even talked to them in connection with my nomination, and and that person said, you know. Uh, surely everyone will be very happy with your return. You are a Bush retread. They could, they could, they could do a lot worse. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, that I'd give you in response to your question about like, you know, how, how does a nice guy like me suddenly become, uh, you know, some sort of demonic target, you know, who's been, uh, you know, painted and frozen in Alinskyite terms. And the answer is that's what the left does when you do something that they don't like. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by... Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. Why did you hesitate? I don't know. Uh, that was, that was yeah. weird. You know, I looked over and I realized your mustache is looking marginally less awful than uh, in previous weeks. Yeah, my wife trimmed it. Yesterday. Yeah, I know. I was on the phone with her earlier today and she mentioned it and I was like, that's great. You should just trim it all the way. Uh, no, <laughs> no. It's, it's, it's coming in. We're yeah. getting there. If We're you'd like there. to... Uh, make uh, profound levels of fun of Nick, you should tune in on YouTube so that you can see how dumb he looks and then yell at him on the internet. I think that'd be really, really quite special. We have a fantastic episode for you guys today. As always, um, before I tell you about who we have on, please go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything that we have cooking here at American Moment, whether it's events, panels, AmCanon, uh, AmericanMoment.org slash join, which you can fill out to meet with us and figure out how to get involved beyond just listening to podcasts, sitting in your underwear on your couch all day, um, and much, much more. This week, we had a fantastic guest on for a conversation that I will freely admit I monopolized and barely let Nick talk, um, but I had a ton of fun. Uh, we had on Jeff Clark, who's the former President Trump selected and Senate confirmed Assistant Attorney General of the Environment and Natural Resources Division of the U.S. Justice Department, and also twofer here, the former acting assistant attorney general for the DOJ's civil division, overseeing over 1,400 lawyers between the two. Um, he is a very, very smart man. Um, he carried out uh, President Trump's agenda at the agency, was one of his uh, most um serious and devoted uh, appointees. Uh, he previously served as the Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Environmental Division during the Bush administration. After that, he spent most of his career as a partner at Kirkland and Ellis and uh, sued everyone and their mother, it seems like. And he also served as an adjunct law professor at the George Mason, now Scalia Law School, teaching two classes, law, science, technology, and environmental law. Uh, he was elected to the American Law Institute in 2020, he served as a member of the American Bar Association's Governing Council, the Administrative Law Section, and spent more more than a decade as the chair of the Federalist Society's Environmental and Property Rights Practice Group. He graduated from Harvard University in 1989 with an AB in economics and Russian history, from the University of Delaware in 1993 with an MA in urban affairs, and from Georgetown University Law Center in 1995 with a JD. He clerked for Judge Danny J. Boggs of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and he is a very, very smart and very based man. Um, he is uh, in a lot of trouble right now with all sorts of uh, weird regime apparatchiks who seem to be very annoyed that he provided just some basic lawyering advice to the president of the United States. Um, and so you should go support him on Give, Send, Go if you can. Uh, but you should also listen all the way through this very deep, intensive episode. Uh, Nick, what did you what did you make of all that? You know, I know you said you monopolized the time, but I was really glad that you were talking for most of it because I was just sitting here the whole time thinking, I'm so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like I like I understood what was going on, but I'm like I cannot think of an intelligent que like you covered it all. I I I no further questions, uh, Your Honor. Uh, you know I I end up, you know my father-in-law being a, a now retired lawyer, I end up hearing. Uh, you know, legal stories and harkening back to cases from like the 80s or whatever all the time. Um, I always find them very interesting, but I have very little to say because I'm not a lawyer or was never interested. In Hank is going to get a kick out of this episode. He's going to love I this episode. I cannot wait to hear his take he's, on it. Hank and Jeff would be fascinating to make that meeting happen. Yeah. Yeah. He um, I always joke with Hank about how we'll uh, we'll get him, uh, you know, to be like the legal counsel for one of those. um you know, advisory boards to the president or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he'll be less enthused about this part where I'm talking about him to all of our listeners, but he'll love the episode. It's fine. So, uh, and we hope that you guys will love it as well. We'll go now to Jeff Clark, a patriot and a scholar. 
Jeff, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm glad to be here, Saurabh. Thanks for inviting me. We always like to hear about how people got to the point where they are today. Um, you seem like such a nice, polite man. How did you end up being a regime enemy? How, how exactly <laughs> do you trace that path? Well, I wasn't. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story about that, I guess, and in, in kind of close to the midpoint. Uh, so, you know, I uh, went to Catholic high school and 12 years of Catholic school in Philadelphia, PA. I grew up what I thought was middle, middle class, but I think was really lower middle class, as I found out later. My dad was a truck driver who never graduated from high school. Uh, and, um, you know, he was diagnosed with cancer uh, right as I was, you know, kind of going getting close to college, but uh, he managed to fight it and managed to see me graduate from Harvard with a degree in economics. And I uh, studied Russian and Soviet history. I was a double major. Um, and then uh, I went to work uh, for three years uh, for the state of Delaware doing tax policy analysis. So it was kind of like a quasi-economist. And at nighttime, I picked up a uh, degree at uh, the School of Public Policy at the University of Delaware, which is now called the Biden School of Public Policy. <laughs> <laughs> and, Do they uh, send you an updated diploma? <laughs> <laughs> they, they have not. Uh, so mine doesn't carry the, the, the Biden uh, thing, but it, but the various things on the web can kind of trigger it. Yeah. Uh, and then I also uh, taught uh, for the last uh, year, or maybe uh, three semesters at uh, uh, the local Delaware Community College, which I believe Jill Biden taught at. So, oh dear. <laughs> uh, and then I went off to, uh, well, I was debating different careers. I thought about, you know, should I be an economist? Should I be a uh, historian? Should I go to law school? Should I go to business school? Should I go, uh, should I become a Sovietologist? And uh, I decided, especially because the Soviet Union fell during that three-year period, <laughs> that Sovietology was probably not the right career path. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I applied and got into the joint JD-MBA program at uh, Georgetown, uh, uh, which I started in 1992. But I love law school so much that I told the business school, which is who you report to for your second year in that four-year program, you know, I think I'm just going to go straight through law school, which I did. Uh, and then I went from uh, uh, law school on to uh, uh, clerk for Judge Boggs, uh, who eventually became the chief judge of the uh, Sixth Circuit. He was considered for the Supreme Court for a time, uh, uh, you know, I think for maybe the first Hispanic seat because his mother was Cuban. Uh, and, um, you know, you know how that process goes. Lots of people are looked at, but, uh, you know, only uh, a few get the nod uh, for what became Justice Kennedy's seat. And then, uh, uh, you know, I had a blast doing that. Um, and I had done a summer splitting between uh, Kirkland and Ellis uh, and between a firm that's now defunct. There was a big New Deal firm called Shane Gardner and has produced a lot of law professors because I'm, you know, kind of wonky, Sarab, mm -hmm. to be uh, to be frank. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, I went to work at, at Kirkland and I worked there uh, from 96 until uh uh, 2001 till August 2001. And then I joined the Justice Department. I got an appointment as a very young deputy assistant attorney general. Um, and so I did all of the appellate cases that went through the environment division in that period. Then I went back to Kirkland as a partner and I was there from uh, two so I, I was in the administration, Bush 43, from 2001 to 2005. Then from 2005 to uh, uh, till my nomination to uh, become the assistant attorney general of that same division, the environment and natural resources division of DOJ. Uh, I was nominated by President Trump in 2017 and had my uh, confirmation hearing. But, uh, you know, for some reason, the the Democrats wanted to fight my uh, nomination. Sarab, and so <laughs> I was held up for, a, you know, something like a record, like 14 months. So wow. I was not confirmed until October, mid-October, right after uh, uh Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed. And uh, then I uh, didn't take office until November 1st of 2018. Wow. And then I served from then until uh, January 14th, 2021. That was my resignation date. Uh, and I was the only assistant attorney general to run two divisions because at the start of September, I was uh, tapped uh, by former attorney general Barr, who issued a glowing press release at the time uh, to run the civil division. So the environment division is 400 lawyers. The civil division is 1,000. So by the time I left the Justice Department, I had 1,400 lawyers uh, under my supervision. Wow. Um, there's an element of, of that chronology that I find really interesting. I, I want to hear about what was your perception of the Bush DOJ? Because there there is this 
interesting conceit out there that you know the the Bush lawyers they're really competent they were on the ball and the Trump lawyers were all these bumbling fools or whatever. Do you think that that's an apt comparison? I mean, the, no. the 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 team behind Bush v. Gore does seem like it was it was very hyper competent and such. But well, what's uh, what's your theory of 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 that whole conceit? Well, I think you're 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 uh, talking about two different things. Mm-hmm. So let me break them apart. One is. Uh, you know, the lawyers who were inside the administration, right? And there might have been some overlap. I worked on uh, Bush v. Gore, for instance, uh, uh, behind the scenes in terms of cases in the Florida Supreme Court. Uh, and, uh, you know, then the ones who were, you know, private lawyers, right? And uh, so I would say that there's a lot of overlap in the in the kinds of people who got into the Justice Department. Uh, so some sort of argument that there was a like an entire like you know, cut of cloth or something of person who was in the Trump Justice Department versus the uh, the Bush Justice Department, I think is a, is a misimpression. And I'll encapsulate this, you, you know, for you with one story. I was talking to a former uh, Solicitor General right before I started on November first in 2018, and uh, and I even talked to them in connection with my nomination, and and that person said, you know. Uh, surely everyone will be very happy with your return. You are a Bush retread. They could, <laughs> they could, they could do a lot worse. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, that I'd give you in response to your question about like, you know, how, how does a nice guy like me suddenly become, uh, you know, some sort of demonic target, you know, who's been, uh, you know, painted and frozen in Alinsky terms. And the answer <laughs> is that's what the left does when you do something that they don't like. Yeah. Did, did, did you find that people thought that you were going to be a relatively anodyne appointee because you had Bush experience? Do you, do you feel like your class of, of, of people who had served in the Bush administration were seeking appointments in the Trump administration had it a little bit easier? So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put that question in terms of my uh, confirmation hearing at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah, having so, the record breaking longest time is, right. is probably so, a, so, you know, so I was on, on a panel uh, with, you know, two officials for the Justice Department, myself and one of my uh, former partners at Kirkland, Beth Williams, and then two folks who became uh, guys who became judges on the uh, federal district court here in D.C., uh, Trevor Potter and Tim Kelly. And so, uh, you know, the the questions were very anodyne, especially for the judges. Literally, they got some questions like, is it important for judges to be even handed and open minded? And, <laughs> and you know, the, those softballs that yes, yes, uh, Senator, very much. Right. And, and you know, I think I think Beth got some questions that were like, a, you know, not not super penetrating, but, you know, a little bit more about some of the policy debates because she was going to head the Office of Legal Policy. But for me. Sarab, I got a, an entirely different treatment and probably 75 to 80 percent of the questions from the Democrats on the uh, committee were trying to, you know, throw me off my game, attack me. I got incredibly detailed questions like in uh, 2007, you worked on a case in the D.C. Circuit where you wrote the following about the challenge to the ozone and particulate matter national ambient air quality standards. And on page 53, you said this. How can that possibly be defended? And I, I got you know questions like that, especially from Senator Franken, Senator Al Franken, who I grew up watching on Saturday Night Live. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of a surreal experience <laughs> to be questioned by him. Like, you know, do you understand what the ozone and, and particulate matter next are, uh, Senator? Franken. Um, so anyway, I, I think that uh, that I pushed back all of that uh, successfully. I think that that he thought he had some, you know, some some gotcha questions, but it didn't work. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I'm I'm from Minnesota and Franken doesn't know what any of those words. Mean. <laughs> like, he doesn't. But he, I, knows, I, he knows how to be grabby on planes, apparently. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. I, I do want to ask, though, what was it about you that they hated so much, like right off the bat? Like what? Like why, why, you know, for our listeners, I guess, and our watchers, why do they hate you, you know, pre now, <laughs> pre pre now? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think the answer to that is that they do their due diligence. And so, you know, they watched what I was doing at the Federal Society, what I had written, uh, you know, speeches that I had given, panels that I'd been on. Uh, and, uh, also they talked to, I think the career people at the justice department who I served with from 2001 to 2005, and it wouldn't have been hard for them to get stories like, you know, Jeff argued for X and, you know, 
he that wound up not being the position that was adopted. But, you know, boy, did he put up a spirited fight. And so mm-hmm. if he comes in, very the world could change on various things. Um, you know, one of those, for instance, that I was trying to change were this whole phenomenon of citizen suits, which is used to basically block all kinds of projects uh, and economic growth in America. And, you know, in, in Bush 43, I had a project going about whether that uh, violates the separation of powers, because it's essentially outsourcing law enforcement powers from the executive branch and the Justice Department to private entities that bring groups. And so, you know, like when I raised that issue, that created a, a firestorm. There was a law professor, Richard Lazarus, whose brother actually works at the Environment Division in the appellate uh, section as a manager. And it was like, you know, Clark is talking about the unthinkable, you know, to the environmental <laughs> groups, to the green movement, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of saying that this can't be done. So I think it's reasons like that. And mm-hmm. that's the answer to your question. Do you want to get more involved with American Moment? Do you want to get off the couch and stop just watching a podcast about the issues you care about? Then you need to go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. If you fill that form out, one of our team members will meet with you and we'll discuss how best to get you involved in politics and public policy here in D.C. Maybe that involves you coming and working at a think tank or a congressional office. Maybe you're in business and it means just holding on for a few years until we get the next presidential administration. Maybe you're a very wealthy person who wants to give us a bunch of money. Either way, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join to meet with a member of our team and get involved more substantively in trying to save this country. It's not enough to listen to podcasts. You actually have to do something. Did you ever get any visibility into what is probably like a very sophisticated, well-funded process to oppose nominations like yours? I'm assuming that, you know, Sierra Club, NRDC, that they they, they probably saw some combination of the work you did in Bush uh, administration, plus the kinds of cases that you were responsible for at Kirkland. And they said, this is going to be a really effective person to oppose our agenda. And that's why all, all hell broke loose. Did, did you... Did you ever get any insight onto, onto what that looked like behind the scenes, how they organized? So, yes. Um, you know, I, I, I saw, obviously, the letters that were sent in and the statements of opposition from those same kinds of, you know, uh, uh, usual suspects that you might expect. Um, but, you know, I had an effective campaign on the other side. You know, the, the Chamber of Commerce led, uh, you know, a call for me to be confirmed and that actually, you know, uh, the fact that I was not being confirmed was causing damage because there were key rulemakings that were underway that I should be there to help defend. You know, mm-hmm. that there a lot of business groups joined, you know, the Farm Bureau joined, for instance. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the uh, uh, that I think was kind of like an evenly matched fight. But, um, you know, there was a there was a problem about marijuana policy. I don't know if you remember this, but basically uh, Senator, you know, then Attorney General Sessions, he uh, announced that he was reversing a policy about not enforcing the marijuana laws in mm-hmm. states that had purported to legalize it. Yeah. And that created a firestorm. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the senators basically put a hold on all Justice Department nominees during the period, uh, you know, that that was happening. So that's kind of like a self-inflicted wound on the Republican side. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Um, what was it like once you actually landed at the uh, Department of Justice? What was the it was 2018. So presumably some of the really, really bad Obama holdovers were basically gone. What was the you know paint a picture for us of what the landscape was like once you arrived in your office? So, uh, you know, Sarab, this is something I want to do some theoretical work on. But there's a concept uh, in the Justice Department that's been called the duty to defend. So it may surprise you. You know, you, you're thinking in terms of personnel. But in terms of policy, there's just always a significant amount of policy because of how long litigation takes, where you're actually, in some instances, defending the policies of the prior administration, mm-hmm. right? And you want to change uh, that ship, right? But oftentimes, the Justice Department is not the principal entity in charge of of, uh, of writing the ship. It's that policy decision is lodged in some other agency. So maybe EPA, in my instance, or the Department of Interior or the Department of Energy. And so, uh, you know, sometimes the Solicitor General's office, uh, which only has two political appointees, the Solicitor General and then the principal deputy Solicitor General, um, you know, but they have a lot of career folks. Sometimes they will basically require that there be formal statements or formal rulemakings done, you know, which 
which take time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, until they're going to allow the Justice Department to actually start repping the new policy rather than the old policy. So mm-hmm. so I did arrive and have to do some of that, you know, kind of defending the prior policy. But, you know, anyone who's a legal advocate and has worked at a law firm, I think increasingly maybe young people don't understand this. This is one reason why it looks like there are a number of federal judges who are actually saying they're not going to hire uh, law clerks from Yale anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they, they get into law firms and they rebel and they refuse to work on kind the particularly kinds of cases, but certainly the way I was raised, and I think people, you know, maybe one one half generation below me for sure, and and certainly older generations, is you're an advocate, right? You 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 uh, take the positions that your clients take. You're mm-hmm. you're a, a uh, an agent of a principal. Oftentimes, you're not the principal. Was there, um, you know, if, if the responsibility, the locus of the responsibility, wasn't necessarily on your division at DOJ, it, it was upstream, it was EPA policymaking. Did you have any particular insight or maybe frustration at the slowness with which uh, reformers at EPA were operating or, or, or any insight into maybe missed opportunities because of, of, of pacing on that front? Well, I think that the, the colleagues in general that I had in the Trump administration at other agencies were very good and they were trying to move things along as rapidly as is prudent. But one, re- you know, you don't want to rush things too fast because basically if you miss something in, say, a rulemaking process, then that can be jammed down your throat in litigation and then you lose and then you have to go back potentially to square one. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's an incentive to spend the optimal amount, like the golden mean amount of time on something, not too long, not too, mm-hmm. not too short. But oftentimes there are, uh, you know, what people have called uh, deep state forces. I really try to reserve deep state for intelligence community things mm-hmm. uh, and and meta meta systems, but uh, administrative state, uh, let's call it that, administrative state, career uh, bureaucrat resistance, and that can add extra time and those obstacles need to be fought through and they require someone who has energy, someone who understands what the levers are. You know, and and I think one thing that happened in the Trump administration is that it there's a learning curve. And so if new people come in, you know, they don't really get their feet under them until, you know, late 2018. Or if you're held up like for I didn't need that because I'd already been at the division. So I knew how everything worked. But other people are just totally new to it and they got to learn. And then you know, by the time they're really up and running, you know, the first term's almost over. Yeah. Say more about what the components of that expertise and experience might be. Like, what, what is the minimum viable product of knowledge that uh, a successful appointee at somewhere like DOJ in a division like yours would need in order to be successful, effective, and and appropriately fast as soon as possible? Sure. Well, I think I'd start with, uh, you know, what we used to call at our law firm candle power. Um, so, you know, some people have a lot of candle power and other people have, you know, lower candle or so horsepower. Mo- no morons is what you're saying. <laughs> um, right. right. Um, and uh, then, you know, there's a there's a training component, right? If you spent uh, a good chunk of time at a uh, at a large law firm doing significant work, um, then, you know, you get a level of training that you just don't otherwise get. Also, at the law firm I went to, Kirkland & Ellis, I mean, it really was like dog years. So the time I spent, for instance, being, you know, one of the uh, main lawyers and all the appellate fights about Deepwater Horizon for mm-hmm. for BP. Um, you know, I build like more than three hundred three thousand hours. Uh, many of those years, that's like the equivalent of like two jobs, yeah. right? So each year that goes by, your experience is stacking up more than than other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, it's for going to the Justice Department. It's litigation experience. It's candle power, and then it's it's judgment, um, which is also something that that. You know, that that I guess you can acquire, but it can be hard if you don't have some kind of native sense of it. Like what will fly with courts, right? You know, what kinds of positions can be adopted? What are your odds of winning so that you can successfully advise, you know, sometimes when the principal is in another agency, you know, how they should uh, uh, frame their role and what kinds of things they shouldn't do versus should do. How would you compare and contrast the median uh, ability along all those different metrics of your typical Dem appointee in a Democratic administration versus your typical Republican one? So I think that uh, in in some areas, it's very similar, mm-hmm. right? Like they're just kind of, you know, on one side versus the other. But in in 
several of the uh, uh, of the divisions, right? There are seven litigating divisions at the Justice Department. Let me see if I can tick them off quickly. There's civil, there's criminal, uh, there's antitrust, there's tax, there's civil rights, there's the environment division, and there's the national security division. And so uh, uh, I think in terms of the environment division and in terms of the civil rights division, maybe even more so, there are a lot of folks who come The hyper-ideological division. The hyper, yeah, call them the hyper-ideological divisions. There is a tendency sometimes to bring in folks to run that who are not kind of lawyers' lawyers, if you know what I mean. They're, they, they might be coming from uh, uh, environmental groups or think tanks. And sometimes they're not the people who are even running the litigation, right? They're just sort of like the managers or face people or something Ideological like that. Ideological commissars, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> You're very good at coming up with quick terminology, yeah. Sarab. I, I applaud you there. So yes, but like if you're talking about who tends to run the tax division, you know, it's like, okay, you get a conservative tax lawyer or you get a liberal tax lawyer, yeah. right? But the credential level, I don't really think tends to be all that different. But both are partners at one of the biggest law firms of the world, probably. Yes. The people running it. Got yes. it. And what are the the these like staff attorney? I mean, there are thousands of them within within the department. What are what are they like? You know, what are what are their backgrounds? What are how do they kind of influence the way that we enforce our law? Okay, so yeah, that's a good question. Let let me uh, uh, tell you about this, which you probably haven't focused on. Right, there are kind of two paths to get into the Justice Department. One is that you start your legal career off there in something called the Honors Program, and so you know you're in law school, you apply for the Honors Program, and you know a small number of people get into the Honors Program, and you know they start as brand new lawyers at the Justice Department, right? And you know some of the departments kind of you know very notable and very successful lawyers come from that because they really get sort of like early steepage in how the Justice Department works, right? And is it considered and very prestigious to get that program? It is con- considered prestigious to get into the honors program, uh, hence the the name. Mm-hmm. And then the other way to come in is laterally, right? You go off and do something else. Uh, you know, you might work at a law firm, you might work at some group, you might work on the Hill, and then, you know, you apply and and then you begin your, you know, later years of your career as a lateral lawyer. So I would say that... Um, Look, uh, in terms of the the civil division, the tax division, uh, the the antitrust division, right? Like these things, you know, maybe a little bit the antitrust division. They don't. They're not seen as having like an external ideological, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, goal in mind, right? But in the environment division and the civil rights division. You know, the people view themselves as having a certain mission. So one of the things I encountered and one of the things I, you know, uh, didn't follow uh, in terms of how the uh, environment division would run is that people should get credit for their level of devotion to the mission, Mm -hmm. because I think that's just sort of a disguised ideological screening mechanism, right? Um, I think what you're really looking for is someone who has excellent neutral legal skills and can learn to be a good advocate for the positions that they're assigned to take. Mm-hmm. And they're not the ones choosing what the positions are, or they mm-hmm. shouldn't be. You know, They should be taking that either from above in terms of cases where the, the, the plaintiff or the defendant is the United States, in which case there is no agency, or in cases where the uh, plaintiff or defendant is a particular agency from that agency. So I think this whole concept of mission, that that is... Uh, something that's foreign uh, or should be foreign to how the department operates. What are the ways that an ideologically motivated lawyer in those especially ideological departments does end up affecting the process um, in a way that that's probably immoral or inappropriate? One way is that they can, you know, if they're dealing with someone who doesn't have greater familiarity with a lot of these issues than they do, is that they can artificially constrain the available options, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, the decision maker who's there only for a short time, right? And we're talking about people who may spend 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of their career at the Justice Department. You know, they say that, well, you can only do A or B. But A or B is like Overton window is like very myopic. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it there's a, a category of legal acumen I refer to as legal creativity, right? Yeah. Some people have that, some, some some people don't. But in any event, sometimes they recognize that there are creative things that conservatives might be able to do, but they just, if they're dealing with someone who doesn't have 
the broader view, then they don't even see, they don't get presented with the options. And so yeah. they think their options are very narrow. I think, for instance, that that's probably one reason why former Attorney General Sessions recused himself. I think he was given, a, you know, a sort of narrow analysis of how to look at that program, that problem. And, you know, you got to like penetrate in and you have to, this is also where the candle power comes in. I'll, I'll give you one example. This is like something that's like very, it's a very good example because it doesn't involve any big policy fight, right? Mm -hmm. The issue is how could I use my LinkedIn account when I was at the Justice Department? Okay. So the advice I get is you can't use your LinkedIn account. And so, you know, so that some people would stop there. They'd be like, okay, I guess I just deactivate my LinkedIn account. My question is why? Why can't I use my LinkedIn account? And the answer is, uh, well, um, you know, social media can be problematic. Okay, why why is it problematic? <laughs> and then it then it then it's well, we think it's analogous to nepotism. What? And I said, yeah. So that that was my reaction, right? And and I said, how could it possibly be analogous to nepotism? And the answer was because it's inherently narrow casting to your network, to people who know about you, much like you'd be talking with your family members. And I said, okay, excuse me. Like I, I actually, can I, can I physically do this? Give me a break. Yeah. Like that is just a ridiculous rationale. So you, yeah. I just conclude that you have no basis for saying that I can't use my LinkedIn account. Yeah. And then, you know, there was no pushback on that because logically the the position had collapsed. Yeah. So there have to be appointees who get in who can make baffle gab, you know, purported legal decisions that are essentially just obstructionism collapse. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. I mean, you know, you, I've heard this analogy in, in the intelligence community or in a national security apparatus before is like, well, how did the neocons win in D.C.? Is that, you know, they'll present three options to a president. One is like demented hawkishness. One is like insane hawkishness. And one is like pure peacenik, you know, lie on the ground, get bombed by nuclear weapons. And it's like, oh, well, you know, the middle option is <laughs> right. is, is to is to do that. And so the framing of the, the Overton window from the career officials is, is I think, uh, hugely operative in, in so many different domains. Um, what um, was unique about the Trump administration, DOJ, in your view? Was there anything particular that was strange based on uh, experience that you had had in the previous administration, but also presumably talking to people who had served in multiple administrations? Right. So, I mean, I spent four years in the Bush administration and, you know, over two years in the in the Trump administration, call it like two and a quarter. So, um you know, I would say that the comparison is it was better in the Trump administration yeah. because I would sit in so many meetings where I would say we should do this. This is, you know, entire this is better policy. This is more consistent with the law. This is more consistent with what the folks who actually because we're talking about we're in a democratically elected branch or, you know, uh, 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 you know, it goes through a constitutional process, the Electoral College for electing the president. Right. So it's all it's all what I'm suggesting is more consistent with that than what you're suggesting. And so many times it would, you know, in the Bush administration, it was like, yeah, but we're really going to get beat up in the uh, Washington Post and the New York Times about that. To which, like, you know, my response is like, good, you know, or like, you know, so who cares or poppycock, right? Um, you know, that's, that's, and that's certainly a reason not to do something that is dictated or at least strongly uh, suggested by what proper constitutional law is. I remember I was having a, you know, discussion with one appointee, uh, you know, uh, about, Clean Water Act uh, issues that involved constitutional limits on the Commerce Clause power, and I was raising these constitutional limits under the Commerce Clause power. And you know, he he just he had a cow and he he exploded and he said like that's tendentious. I I don't want to talk about the Constitution. And so <laughs> there, that, I I will assure you that when I would have meetings with uh, political appointees in the Trump administration, not once did I ever hear anything remotely like that, Sarab. Mm -hmm. So it was very different. There was much more of a willingness to entertain uh, new ideas, to uh, to not think that there were sacred cows, to follow the Constitution, and to uh, do the kinds of things that, the, uh, that President Trump wanted to see done. Did any of your assessment of credentialing change over the course of the last 20 years, having seen both these administrations? I mean, it, 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 you know, whether it's about Ivy League, clerkships, being at fancy law firms, do, do, has your assessment of the relative merits or demerits of all those credentials evolved in any meaningful way? I think it, that that I don't think there's a systematic way in which it's evolved. 
But what I think is true is that it's it's idiosyncratic. You have to look, you have to take each person on their own merits. And so, uh, you know, if there are some people who have a litmus test of you, you must have gone to a particular law school in order to be even remotely in the ballpark, I don't agree with that. I mean, I've seen people come into Kirkland and Ellis, for instance, who were Supreme Court law clerks and bomb out because they weren't particularly good. In fact, I had a mentor who referred to uh, one person in that category who was like a rough contemporary with me as Dr. Swango. I don't know if that's a, uh, a I, reference. He, he was a doctor who was killing his patients. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so the, the point was like you would not want this person to be your lawyer, right? Yeah. By the same token, I've encountered you know, it tends to be folks like at the top of their class at other law schools or even just people who, you know, like maybe they were in, you know, like the like top half or top third of their their law school, uh, you know, from what. And it wasn't like it's not a super distinguished law school, but they worked really, really hard. Right. Like there is a way to overcome uh, credentialization. But I but when people ask me about going to law school, for instance, I do tell them that I think that uh, I've had a very fortunate legal career by and large. Obviously, I'm under assault at the moment, but I've had a very fortunate legal career. I've never had to do what I regarded as kind of like grunge work. You know, I was always doing kind of like high theory and things like that. And and that the legal field is very heavily stratified. So, you know, you want to get into the best possible law school and you want to do as, as best as possible. And then you want to get on the law review and the best possible law review along the range of options. And then you want to get the best clerkship, you know, you preferably federal. Um, and then, you know, if you get a Supreme Court clerkship, you're in a, you know, a, in an entirely different class. It's just, there are all these stratification things. At the end of the day, they're helpful. They give you a leg up, like the more you can do that, but, um, but they're not entirely uh, dispositive. And, you know, there are some people who, um, you know, you also have to talk about debt loads and things like that. So anyway, what I would say I've learned is that, you know, don't be a snob. Don't, uh, you know, just assume that people like have particular credentials, the ergo they're great or other people don't have them, ergo they're bad. I think that thinking is very wrong. Do you feel like the nature of your job and the job of the DOJ, uh, a conservative in a Republican DOJ changed from administration to administration because of the evolving nature of the federal judiciary? And you can take that any meaningful any which way, you know, the the institutionalization of maybe, um, you know, originalism via the Federalist Society and then those being a lot of the Trump appointees or maybe eight years of Obama getting a lot of appointees through. What, what, do, do you feel like that the nature of the judiciary changed the nature of your work? Well, as someone who had done a lot of work in the D.C. circuit, the, the uh, number of appointees that the Obama administration got on that court changed its uh, complexion significantly. Uh, so, you know, certainly when I was a younger lawyer, like when starting in 96, right, uh, through the Obama administration, there was kind of like a DC circuit of one type. And I also understood it historically because I would read a lot of cases from the Reagan era, mm -hmm. right, that what, what did the judiciary look, look like then. But then, you know, like now I'm a partner at a law firm and I've been at the Justice Department and I'm watching as the Obama administration appoints you know, different judges and other judges, you know, retire, um, you know, that that you see that change and you watch it, you know, unfold. Now it's sort of largely in place. Right. So I would say, you know, I, I've I've really kind of seen three eras by studying it, you know, the the Reagan era and then to some extent the, the Carter uh, era. Uh, I, you know, grew up in a, a D.C. circuit of a particular range up until 2009 um, and then. Now I see the current uh, D.C. Circuit. So, yeah, I mean, the, the evolution of of who the personnel is on the courts as judges certainly has an impact in how you practice. And it that therefore it has an impact in how you advise your clients. Right. If you're going to challenge something, if you're on the receiving end of a government action, you know, that's that's what a lawyer is paid to do is to exercise that kind of form of judgment. Going back to your time in the Trump administration, what was it like to be the the principle of the two most ideological and then some of the very large divisions at DOJ. I mean, is there any historical precedent for that? And and also, I mean, what was your day like when you were <laughs> in charge of both? I don't think there have been many situations where the same person, you know, had a significant span of time to run two mm -hmm. divisions. And I should also say, I don't want to claim too much credit in that I had a very able principal deputy in uh, the environment division. And so 
I kept my hand in that, right? But I turned my focus to the to the new division that's 2.5 times larger than the than the existing division. Mm-hmm. And I would kind of keep my hand in things that I thought were very important to kind of see through to the end. But the other thing I'd, I'd say is that the civil rights division, right, that's the, the one I think is ideological, is not the same as the civil division. So I had the civil division, not the civil rights oh, division. Oh, sorry, my apologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in the civil division, the kinds of issues you do, you know, you have all the immigration issues. So there are a lot of hot button so issues. So plenty of opportunities plenty for of very opportunities. ideological yes, stuff there too. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very uh, So, So yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a very, uh, you know, unique and I, I feel, you know, blessed and favored to have, uh, you know, to gotten the opportunity to run too. What, um, what was the general tenor of the last year of the, cause, cause when did, when did you take over the second one? Was that in the last September year? September of, of 2020. September so of 2020. a couple okay. months before the election. A couple months before the election. So, um, what was the environment like at DOJ during an election year? I mean, what were some of the, and this will obviously go into some of the, the things you've gotten in trouble for, but, um, uh, what, 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 what was the, the mood like, uh, did it feel different or, or similar to what it was like when, when you were in the Bush administration? So, you know, first of all, you know, the justice department is, uh, you know, like you're, you're, you're bound by the hatch act, right? You're not going out and you're doing, you're not doing politicking. Sure. Right. Um, so I wasn't doing that in, in, in the 2004 election, right. I wasn't doing that in the, in the 2020 election. Um, I think that there was kind of a cautious optimism in, uh, Bush 43 that he would get a second term. Um, I think the mood on, the Trump administration is that there, there was there was hope, but there was probably lo- a bit less optimism. Mm-hmm. That it felt like, particularly with the COVID crisis and how and the, how the lockdowns of you know sort of affected the e- economy. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people in America vote their pocketbook, right? That there might be cause for less optimism if I compare twenty twenty cycle to twenty two thousand four cycle. Mm-hmm. And so. Election season comes around and uh, there were obviously a lot of questions about um, what exactly went on uh, and you found yourself smack dab at the middle of it. Tell, tell us that story. What 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 is it that you started working on in the last few months of the administration that got everyone so very angry at you? Well, uh, there are some things behind the scenes that I that I worked on that that have not, um, you know, been a been a focus because you know, the focus has been on a particular issue of whether I wrote uh, a draft letter that was debated internally at the Justice Department to send to the state of Georgia. But, you know, there are some other things I, I worked on that were within the span of the uh, the civil division's power. Um, so, you know, in terms of that whole uh, issue about the letter, right? The, the important thing to understand about that. And what was this letter just for the basics of? Yeah. So the, 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 uh, the, the letter, uh, you know, which is, has been released publicly, um, but I won't, um, uh, you know, sort of testify about the letter sure. given various privileged positions that I, I would take. And then I want to do one to return to the privilege point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the letter that's been uh, public, publicly released, the draft letter, is uh, a letter to the state of Georgia's uh, two houses of the legislature and to Governor Kemp indicating that there's a direct constitutional delegation to state legislatures to decide who the electors are from that state. And the Supreme Court indeed has said there's plenary power over that question. Mm -hmm. Indeed, there's a there's a case about the independent state legislature doctrine uh, before the Supreme Court this term, the Moore case. And so uh, the letter says that the uh, Georgia legislators could call themselves the houses, two houses could call themselves in the special session to investigate further information that had come out from a particular Senate uh, committee that uh, a senator, uh, state senator in Georgia, uh, Ligon, had run. Um, And that's really it. Uh, And so, uh, you know, at some level, I'll just take a step back and say, you know, there's a firestorm about that. Um, and but it shows that, you know, the Democrats can make uh, mountains out of molehills. But to return to the privilege points, which are significant. OK, if there's something that's debated inside the legislative branch and indeed is debated before the president who becomes the ultimate decision maker, 
All of that should be entirely confidential. Mm -hmm. It should be sacred. It should be sacrosanct. It should be respected. And lawyers take an oath of confidentiality. And so, you know, it was in late January of 2021, uh, after uh, President Biden took office, that uh, anonymous leakers went and they started talking about these deliberations and about, uh, you know, this letter that created the firestorm. Were, were these I, careers that had been uh, that that had continued from administration to administration or did they have visibility into records from the previous administration that um, that they discovered this in? Well, I mean, uh, you know, part of the problem of having anonymous leakers is you don't know who they are, right. Sarab. But but I think, you know, all indications from the story would be that at least some of the people who were in meetings with the president were the ones doing the leaking. And. The, the main me you know, meeting that they focused on, a January 3rd meeting, is a meeting that was, other than President Trump, attended exclusively by lawyers. So anyone who went to the press to talk about the contents of that meeting is not following what the proper legal strictures are. So mm -hmm. that's and, and you know, uh, uh, it's not something I want to cover uh, in any depth, but I'll make one quick reference to it. Right. Uh, the D.C. bar is, uh, you know, uh, looking at charges that were filed uh, by its prosecutor against me at the moment. But it appears as if there have been no investigations of those violations of uh, legal ethics by those who were the anonymous leakers. It's a strange double standard, Sarab. What has it been like uh, to have the full force of it seems like a constellation of lefty NGOs and uh, federal prosecutors and, and the, the entire regime apparatus uh, to come down to bear on you? What, what, what just has that experience been like personally? Well, it, you know, it's not uh, it's not the greatest. It's certainly not what I anticipated doing, you know, uh, uh, at the end after I left the Trump administration. But, um, you know, that's not what God apparently had in store. And, uh, you know, I'm not crying over spilt milk. I'm currently at the Center for Renewing America. I'm very grateful for my work there to uh, try to help uh, change various legal paradigms and policy paradigms, along with Russ Vogt, uh, our, our fearless leader, uh, the former OMB head who I worked uh, closely with, particularly because the largest and most significant for the national economy rulemakings are the ones that come out of EPA. So we had an obvious overlap. Mm -hmm. Um so so yes, I mean it's you know it's it's not been great to uh to have those all those things attack, but it you know it's become trite at this point, right? But you know, if you're over the target and you're being effective, you're going to be attacked. Mm -hmm. And you know, the left has this narrative that the uh 2020 election is just unquestionable. Somehow, you know, the 2016 was question, uh, election was questionable. The 2004 election was questionable. The 2000 election that, you know, resulted in Bush v. Gore, that was all questioned. All, you know, people like Jamie Raskin can stand up on the floor and object to uh, electors for Republican presidents they don't like. But if Republicans do it, it's a coup. It's an insurrection. It's yeah. it's a it's another double standard. Yeah, it's 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 been really amazing to watch. I mean, you know, the Democrats view at this point is essentially that any election that they don't win is per se illegitimate, which I think is just one of the most absurd status quo to set up in American life. Um, what has uh, the contours of your your post-administration uh, work look like? What are some of those particular avenues of reform that you think are are, are really obvious and, and need to be tackled immediately? So one project that uh, Russ Vote had and uh, Ken Cuccinelli, who you know, served as the number two in the Department of Homeland Security and is also a senior fellow at uh, the Center for Renewing America uh, just before I, you know, well, not just before, but, you know, they had it in in play and there were still steps to be, you know, taken, hopefully to, to, to turning the dial on this is the whole issue of an invasion on the southern border. And the fact that the Constitution grants uh, the states the independent power to repel uh, actual invasions. Mm -hmm. And that's a power that uh, uh, the AG of Arizona agreed with us is one that, uh, you know, the states can exercise. He has an excellent opinion on that topic. Uh, you know, gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake in Arizona has pledged that uh, she will follow through and actually making that the policy of Arizona, you know, beginning as early as day one of her administration. What would that let them do if they declared an invasion? You know, I think they could basically do what they were doing with the uh, the, the program that related to, to, to COVID, which is they could meet folks coming across at the border 
and they could reflect them back and send them back across the border. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about uh, using their state guards or what, what could use using could what, use what yeah could use that power. could could use um, you know uh, state. Uh, rangers, maybe, you know, or state troopers, depending on what kind of state and what, what they call themselves uh, to do that. So, you know, we're not we're not talking about uh, the state of Arizona, you know, uh, buying tanks and B-1 bombers and attacking Mexico. We're, 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 but, you know, obviously people would need to resist the cartels and the cartels are dangerous and they're armed and they're armed with, you know, sophisticated weaponry and, and uh, other technologies. So, you know, you would need the ability to to resist that. But, you know, the the, the main thing, I think, is you would just say uh, that, you know, the, the folks who are coming across if they're entering illegally, that they should be repulsed. So, so I've been working on that issue since I joined. And in particular, I worked on a memo I did jointly with uh, Ken Cuccinelli about, uh, I think, an excuse not to do that, which is that uh, if that policy were pursued, somehow the Justice Department is going to start filing criminal civil rights charges. So this would be in the Civil Rights Division, mm-hmm. out of the Civil Rights Division, um, to uh, you know, to bring the the agents, the troopers, you know, the state guardsmen uh, up on criminal charges for discriminating oh. against uh, immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so the paper explains why that is, uh, you know, or should be a phantom fear mm-hmm. because it's something at the very least i'll just give you one of the many reasons in the paper but because you know it would be subject to uh qualified immunity interesting uh this is a slightly orthogonal question um one of the things that's concerned me a lot is that you know obviously a huge priority of conservative jurisprudence uh for the last 20 30 years has been reducing the size and scope of the administrative state and recognizing um how these things work my concern is that the first domino to fall on the effectiveness of the administrative state will be some unholy coalition of like libertarian originalists and the left deciding that ah yes yes the administrative state is illegitimate but only when it comes to enforcing immigration law do you have any concern about this at the federal level that we are uh, jurisprudentialing our way out of the ability to enforce immigration law at all well, I think that Sessions versus Demaya in cases like this were yeah, obviously I, front of mind. I, I think that there's um, a historic power of uh, the attorney general, really, and he's still involved uh, in these you know, issues, despite sort of the rise of, you know, the Immigration and Naturalization Service and now, you know, DHS, right, to to uh, to make policy in this area. And, you know, Congress can obviously set uh, naturalization laws. Um, but, you know, everything is always kind of a, a two-edged sword, right? You can see that, you know, there's some policies that the right likes um, that, uh, you know, are supported by the administrative state and, and by uh, current administrative law doctrines. Um, we could talk about the meta doctrine of, of Chevron and where that stands, which Justice Scalia was one of the real like, champions of. But word was that shortly before his death, he was reconsidering that and thinking that basically it was allowing the administrative state to, to run amok. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, times times can change. So I think we need reform in that area inherently you know, uh, you don't see only sacred cows of your uh, political opponents slain. You mm-hmm. can sometimes, you know, see some uh, things, dominoes fall that you might not rather see if you could be the czar. But mm-hmm. in America, no one should want to be the czar. Mm-hmm. You know, we should want to have our our uh, Montesquieu-inspired separation of powers where, you know, there's a, there's a Congress, uh, there's a, a president, and there's a, uh, a, a court. And they're all jostling with each other and they all have their own separate role. And the the outcome of that actually should be to preserve liberty and should be that it's difficult to pass laws. And so I think part of reforming the administrative state is to return it to that vision where it's more difficult to actually get new laws in place. At the moment, right, the volume of what's in the code of federal regulations and what comes out of the federal register is just mind numbing. There's no way anyone could understand all of it. But is there any part of you that that has maybe started to to reevaluate what exactly the balance of power in American life is? And here I won't put words in your mouth. I'll just lay it out. It seems like this the strictures by which conservatives restrain themselves under Republican administrations um, are are extremely tight, and it's very very hard to get positive reform done. And that the left seems completely unrestrained. 
under left-wing administrations. Right. Well, and that's frustrating. What, what do you say to people who, who say that that's a rotten deal and, and we should we should avail ourselves of more opportunities and tools? Yeah. You know, I, I think that uh, just yesterday I was hearing someone describe this very issue that you're describing with this colorful analogy, which is, you know, that that the uh, conservatives are playing with, uh, you know, 18th century British uh, rules of warfare. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other side is fighting, you know, uh, uh, asymmetrical warfare, guerrilla warfare, war by all means. Um, And so I, you know, I do think we need to uh, sometimes take the gloves off. Mm -hmm. It just, I think it becomes a question sometimes of, of, of what, uh, what the roles are in taking that off. And, Mm -hmm. and so there's certainly like lots of progress that can be made even at at a more genteel level, right? So we saw, I think, a very important case come out of the Supreme Court at the end of the last term, the West Virginia versus EPA case, which enshrined in its own, in these terms, the major questions doctrine for the first time. And the the uh, the argument is, you know, the doctrine is essentially that, look, if you have a major question of uh, economic and political significance that you you know the, you shouldn't lightly assume that a statute especially if the statute sat there for a long time and nobody ever saw this in the statute before it's also related to this principle that's grown up in the last you know uh, uh, three decades or so of Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes um, so when you're discovering elephants in mouse holes um, you know, the, the major questions doctrine should be the antidote to that and to say you need to have an exceptionally clear, a clear statement by Congress that they actually wanted to give earth shattering power over, you know, these great questions of economic and political significance to an administrative agency. Otherwise, it's a question that that the agency should return to Congress to ask, like, wow, in light of new circumstances, Congress, we'd really, gee, we'd really like to have this new power. Can you give it to us? And then it's, it's up for, uh, you know, debate in our Republican system and it, it, it is adopted or it's not. That's the system I think that's a lot closer to the classic constitution. Um, and, and then I'd also commend to you if you haven't read it, justice Gorsuch's separate opinion in Virginia versus EPA, which puts even more meat on the bones of the, uh, of the, uh, major questions doctrine and says that, you know, uh, major issues of federalism, major issues of the separation of powers, these things should also be considered major questions and therefore require some clear statement by Congress before the balance of power can be upset. When it comes to um, the unique solution that you guys at CRA have started advancing on the question of border enforcement invasion, uh, that's a state level answer to what has historically been understood as a federal question. Um, there's another uh, case at an even lower level uh, of um, you know uh, Texas and their uh, you know private right of action uh, for abortion. Um, what, what do you make of the proliferation of these? Um, alternative clever lawyering tactics in order to to pursue what we want do you, th- do you think it's a sign that um you know uh, uh, of opportunities that were just sitting by the wayside or are these you know oddball implements that have to be brought to hand because we just don't seem to get what we want done at the federal level well i think there's part of it i mean i had mentioned this concept of legal creativity mm-hmm. right so um yeah you know if extraordinary times call for extraordinary responsive legal creativity mm-hmm. uh and so you do want to look at like what weapons you actually can find at hand in, in the existing text of the constitution mm-hmm. and its and its doctrines but i also think that it's in general just another part of the genius of the design of the constitutional system right you know uh justice kennedy uh, you know, not a fan of all of his work, mm-hmm. right? But I think there's one particular Sweet history of life. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, exactly. But but um, there is, you know, uh, especially on federalism questions, there's there is some genius, and at the very least in his writing, right? So he coined this phrase that you know when uh, the framers created federalism, they split the atom of sovereignty, mm-hmm. right, and released a lot of of power to actually. Uh, conduce to liberty. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. And so I think what you're seeing with a lot of these responses at the state level, Sarab, is you're seeing that, uh, you know, if the federal government becomes too overweening, then the states, they're they're inherently becoming sort of like a a, a constitutional antigen to, you know, a a virus of having too much federal control, too much centralization. And I I think the, the framers uh, foresaw that. And that's why they didn't just provide 
that the federal government is supreme in all areas, right? Instead, we have in Article One a Congress with enumerated powers and only enumerated powers, and then we have uh, you know the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, right? And we have the structural system of federalism. So the words federalism and the words separation of powers they don't appear in the Constitution, but their structure is unmistakable, mm-hmm. and and certainly the framers talked about those uh, doctrines frequently. So I think that that here a lot of what you're you're calling innovation and that's leading to this legal creativity is uh, is, is based on the genius of having a system that is a federalist in nature. The institutional conservative legal movement, I think, is fair to say has has not been a great friend to you in the last few months and and this last year. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, do you think that it has become corrupted like? You know, intellectual ideological movements sometimes do. Um, what, what, what's your What's your read on that? Well, we're we're obviously facing, and this is one of the, the other big topics for uh, for the uh, the CRA, which is uh, we're 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 facing the issue of you know woke government, right? And and also woke quasi government in the form of all of the giant corporations and all of the giant entities that control access to capital adopting these you know environmental social governments uh, governance ESG policies so i think in part it's that and in part it's just that as in those those corporate entities still have a lot of sway over the institutional conservative movement and that's why they weren't there to help you i think you know you can you can trace it through multiple steps right so if you're first of all, let's just start with the law firms, right? If you're at a law firm, um, oftentimes you know they marry different kinds of practices. Like there's a transactional practice, like you know mergers and acquisitions, buying new companies, bankruptcy restructurings, and then there's a litigation side. Okay, so you know if all if all the Black Rocks of the world, right, and if all of the major corporations are woke, right. They're they're driving uh, a lot of the policies that essentially the corporate lawyers are enshrining through what they're doing, right? So then now you're at the management level of the firm, and even if you have fifty percent of your lawyers who are conservatives on the litigation side, they're still diluted by the power and the money that's coming in from the transactional practice, right? So I think that's one thing that that results in it. And so then if the law firm as a whole is kind of like weakening, and they're contributing to organizations, right, that could provide uh, mediating uh, institutions, right? That that would be a bigger check to tax on particular people, like someone like me, right? That can be uh, diminished or that can be chilled. Um, the other thing is just, uh, you know, a sort of straight up capture, right? That that uh, you know, um, if you're a a a benefactor, a philanthropist who is you know more of a neocon bent, right? You can help, you know blunt populism by donating to certain organizations and then, you know, sort of pulling the reins back on what it is that they're going to do. And then the, the other thing we've been pursuing is fighting back against the weaponization of government. So the weaponization of government is creating a lot of fear, right? So there are some people who might other, they might be uh, interested in fighting through all the other forces I just described, but they're afraid of what it might mean for them, right? Maybe then all that's going to happen is there's going to be a target trained on them, their back. I would urge anyone who watches this to realize that, look, you know, you you want to uh, you want to stand on your feet, even th- if that involves dying, because principles are important. You don't want to, you know, get down on your knees and be subservient and then regret that choice for the rest of your life and have to explain it to your children. In I think. The exact number escapes me. In less than a thousand days, I think that's accurate. Uh, there will potentially be a conservative president elected. What's your advice to them? I think that uh, they should be, uh, if they're thinking about running, they should be using this period to reflect on the kinds of uh, pushback and obstacles, uh, and uh, you know, deep state and administrative state resistance that uh, was shown to President Trump, and think about how they're going to uh, fight back on that. Right, mm-hmm. that the, it's not going to be. You don't want to be in a mode where you're purely reactive. You want to arrive with a very good sense of who the personnel should be uh, so that you can fill the 6,000 or so positions in the plum book, however, whatever the right number is, uh, as many as possible on day one, you know, with uh, or with parachute teams, right? If you if you don't get, uh, you know, the the ability to, to, to get everyone through, especially with the Senate confirmation process, obviously that takes longer time. 
Um, but you need to be as close to ready with all of that at the start. And you have to be ready with what you're going to do in the first hundred days in concrete terms. Um, and you even want to think about things like, you know, rulemaking text in your head, text of executive orders, uh, so that um, those things are, are ready to go. Uh, so I think it's, you know, it, it's good to be tan rested and ready, but you also want to be educated, prepped, uh, you know, deep thinking and ready. One of the musical uh, bits in the original Lion King movie is "Be prepared," and that sounds like your your guidance. Uh, and I think it's it's certainly a good one. Uh, Jeff, how can people keep up with everything that you're doing, your work, uh, your many travails at the hands of this regime, <laughs> and uh, and and all the ways you're causing them trouble? So uh, I think you know uh, you can see what I'm doing for the Center for Renewing America at our website, uh, uh, you know, which is just a quick Google search for Center for Renewing America. I believe it's RenewingAmerica.org. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, and then on social media, I'm uh, Jeff Clark US uh, at on Twitter, and and the same on Getter, and then on Truth Social, I believe I am uh, Real Jeff Clark. And if I could make one plug sure. up here at the end, which is as these attacks heat up, uh, I, I would appreciate, um, you know, if anyone would go to uh, uh, Give, Send, Go and, and help me out with my legal defense. Mm -hmm. And Give, Send, Go is such a wonderful site, right? Even if your means would not allow you to do that at the moment, you can send me a prayer, which I highly participate, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry, highly uh, would appreciate. And my, my uh, Give, Send, Go is GiveSendGo.com slash Jeff Clark. I, I highly, highly encourage people to to check that out. Uh, I, again, I've been um, I'll, I'll say something that that maybe you you can't say. I've been thoroughly disgusted by a lot of the institutional conservative movement and how little they've stepped up to defend the people who are some of our smartest, most capable, intelligent warriors who maybe just had a slightly different perspective uh on 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 some of this election stuff than some of the more establishment types and so i think that uh that's partially why i um uh think so highly of russ is that that he would he would hire you and step into that void so thank you for everything that you do and thank you for coming on moment of truth well thank you for having me and i absolutely share your appreciation for russ both at a personal level and at a uh, level of respecting what he's trying to do for the country we hope you enjoyed that episode, and we hope that you will rate and review this Moment of Truth podcast on all platforms, uh, whether that's giving it a thumbs up on YouTube and subscribing, whether it's uh, you know rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, five stars only. It really does help us with the algorithm, especially because uh, we're assuming that YouTube is going to zap this interview. Uh, so please check us out on Rumble as well. Uh, alternative media platforms are more important than ever. Uh, but thank you guys, as always, for listening and we hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Moment of Truth. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.